Welcome to the Maritime Executives Podcast Series, In the Know. I'm Tony Munoz, Editor-in-Chief. Our Executive Corner Podcast will provide conversations with top executives concerning events and issues that are shaping our industry today. We will also bring you up to speed with the latest news and editorials covered by the Maritime Executive. Today, we are speaking with Jennifer Carpenter. She serves as the president and CEO of the American Waterway Operators, uh, the national trade organization representing the inland and coastal tugboat and towboat and barge industry. Jennifer joined AWO in 1990 and became president and CEO January uh, 2020. Uh, welcome, Jennifer, and thank you for joining us on this uh, Maritime Executive Podcast. Ah, thanks so much for the opportunity. Glad to be here. Great, awesome. Um, you jo- when you joined uh, AWA in 1990 and became its president exactly a year ago, tell our listeners about the changes in the organization over the years and how it's evolved to this place. Absolutely. So, you know, we were just chit-chatting earlier about what a consequential time we're living through right now. When I joined AWO in 1990, it was actually five days before the Oil Pollution Act of 1990, which was the legislative response to the Exxon Valdez, was enacted into law. And so that was also a time of incredible change in the industry landscape. For me personally, it was a tremendous time to come into the industry and just start drinking from the fire hose. Um, and so really, you know, kind of two two sort of themes of evolution that I would highlight since then. One is on the advocacy side. Advocacy is absolutely AWO's core mission. That's why the organization was founded in, 1990, in 1944. It was to be an advocate for the industry with Congress, with the federal agencies, with the states, for the public policies that really enabled this industry to be successful. And over the years, uh, AWO members have really built this organization into a formidable fighting force, one that very much punches above its weight in the public policy arena. They have really put in the sweat equity to make that happen. They have leveraged their grassroots relationship uh, with policymakers. They have gotten folks out on tugboats and towboats to learn the industry firsthand. Uh, they have given uh, through our political programs. They have worked together with customers, shippers, unions, allied organizations to really amplify our industry's voice. And that has really built AWO into an organization that members of Congress, that federal agencies, that state officials come to when they need to understand how their actions are going to impact the maritime industry. Uh, and I'm just really proud of the work that our members have done to get us to that point. Safety is the other thing that I would highlight. Um, over, the, over the last 30 years, and particularly over the last 25, um, AWO members, this organization, have really worked to put our money where our mouth is when it comes to safety. So in 1994, we became the first transportation trade organization to put together a code of practice for member companies, the Responsible Carrier Program. A year later, we established the first of its kind, Coast Guard AWO Safety Partnership, to come together with our regulator to look at how we could improve 
safety and environmental stewardship. We added security to that over the years. Um, so really, you know, all about doing the right thing because it keeps people safe. It keeps our environment safe, but it also is so important to avoiding the kind of unforced errors that are bad for the industry's reputation, bad for the bottom line, uh, and risk public policy uh, counter-reaction. Well, 2020 was like no other year. Tell us about some of the challenges that you have weathered uh, and how you weathered them. I'm sorry. Sure thing. Yeah. So, you know, the old curse, may you live in interesting times. We sure are. Uh, 2020 brought us a global pandemic, significantly reduced demand in many of the markets that our industry serves. We saw severe weather from hurricanes to wildfires out west, civil and political unrest. Um, I want to start with just what the industry did. Um, and that really is what it always does. Um, you know, mariners and companies put their heads down. They kept vital cargoes moving that are so important to our economy. They showed resilience. They showed perseverance. They really put themselves on the line um, like they do, you know, 24-7, 365. Um, and I'm just so proud to work for an industry like that. Um, they realized early on there wasn't a safety versus economics trade-off. On the contrary, you know, keeping people and especially mariners safe was really going to be key to keeping vessels moving and keeping cargo flowing, um, and that has re- worked remarkably well. For AWO, we exist to support this industry, and I made a commitment when I came in in January of last year. I said, you know, we're gonna we're gonna work to produce advocacy results and safety resources that make a positive difference for you. We're going to give you a timely communication that tells you what you need to know when you need to know it. We're going to be excellent stewards of your hard-earned resources. We're going to really step up our game in terms of uh, cooperating with allied organizations. And so we really stayed focused on those commitments throughout 2020, both pandemic-driven needs, as well as the priorities that predated the pandemic and are going to continue beyond it. It's interesting. I've spoken to a number of um, tugboat operators, um, and and during the first part of the year, um, their business had really dropped off, and they were very concerned about um, uh, a lot of things, uh, whether the business was going to continue, how were they going to deal with it. What has AWO done to help its members meet the public health challenges COVID? Yeah, we have been working very hard to help our members, you know, through that first acute phase of the crisis and through the, the chronic phase with the acute flare-ups that we've, you know, that we're continuing to live through. Um, producing safety resources to help them manage this public health crisis, providing forums for them to come together to uh, learn from experts and to share information has been a big focus. So, you know, back starting in February, we began putting together sample plans, procedures, crowdsourced by members. We put on a webinar series um, to help members uh, learn from experts. We created a one-stop shop web page that we're continually updating with COVID resources, very much focused right now on vaccination. Uh, we've held regular member conference calls. We're now doing those on teams so that members can come together and say, hey, I've had this experience. Anybody else dealing with this, 
what can you tell me about how you've handled it? Um, some practical help. Earlier uh, last year, we teamed up with uh, the Maritime Security Coordinating Council and the Maritime Administration to distribute 230,000 free masks to members. And we've been advocating throughout this with the Coast Guard, with customers, with Congress, the state, to make sure that we can keep commerce moving. So working to make sure that mariners were designated as essential critical infrastructure personnel um, and that they had the means to demonstrate that so they could cross state lines and keep working during state uh, during stay-at-home orders. Working with the Coast Guard to make sure that uh, we didn't have credentials expiring, uh, that we could adapt regulatory procedures, you know, remote audits, inspections, uh, things like that. Uh, worked with Congress to pass the Maritime Transportation System Emergency Relief Act. We are currently very focused on making sure that mariners have access to vaccination um, so that they can keep themselves healthy as we start to pull out of this. Excellent. Paul, why don't you jump in? Yeah, so um – what are some of your major advocacy issues for the coming year, and, and how do you see the, the new political environment under the new administration? Yeah, uh, we're going to have lots of challenges and lots of opportunities. I'll say, first of all, that, you know, a new administration, a new Congress, um, it's just so important to get out of the blocks quickly, to introduce ourselves to new policymakers, to tell our story, to build and strengthen the relationships that we have. You know, there's just no better time than the beginning of an administration in Congress to make a good first impression. So we are actively engaged in that already. Looking at specific issues, uh, we're not out of the COVID woods, and so we need to make sure that, uh, you know, public policy is supporting members in managing the ongoing challenges. Uh, subchapter M, we are on the back half of the four-year phase-in period to get all towing vessels certificated, and we need to make sure that we finish the job strong. Infrastructure is a huge priority, uh, not only making sure that we have the lock and dam infrastructure, the channel depth, uh, but also the Coast Guard buoy tenders, the routine dredging after high water, low water, so that we can keep channels open. Uh, implementing the Vessel Incidental Discharge Act, which was a huge legislative accomplishment a couple of years ago, but the proof is going to be in the regulatory implementation. And then, as always, um, telling the positive story of all that the Jones Act does, not just for our industry, but for the economic and the national security of the country. I think, you know, the good news here is we have a very positive story to tell a new administration. There is a lot for them to like about us. Uh, we have an incoming president at administration who have, uh, underscored their support for the Jones Act. They've expressed their commitment to infrastructure. Um, they are keen to invest in offshore renewable energy, which we see as a real emerging market for our industry, um, and I think there's a lot for them to like about us as, you know, really the um, most fuel-efficient, greenest mode of surface transportation. That said, uh, you know, there's going to be challenging issues. This administration is going to put a heavy focus on climate change. Um, we're seeing that at the international level from the International Maritime Organization, um, and so we're going to have to be actively engaged in that conversation to make sure that... Uh, you know, we get to where we need to be uh, as a country and an industry uh, in a practical way. It sounds like a very full plate. 
Um, zooming in yes. quickly on the, the vaccination question, you know, that's, that's such a, an important thing for Americans in, in every industry right now. Can you tell us about why America's transport workers should be near the front of the line for the vaccine? Yeah, absolutely. So I would really highlight two things. First, they are absolutely a part of the essential critical infrastructure of this country. They literally, you know, move the energy cargoes that keep the lights on. They move the agricultural commodities uh, that keep our economy afloat and keep food on the shelves. So they are just a critical link in the supply chain, which COVID has shown us we really need to, we need to control. Their working environment also makes it particularly important um, that they be uh, promptly have access to vaccination. As you know, you know, many, most mariners are living on board the vessels on which they work. It's hard to social distance on a 95-foot tugboat. And so, uh, you know, once you get out there and if everybody is is safe and infection-free, it's a very safe, it's almost like a little self-quarantined environment. But uh, we got to keep people safe, get them out there safe uh, so that they can keep doing the important work that they do for the country. Let me shift gears here a little bit, um, if you don't mind, Jennifer. How important is the development of LNG facilities and LNG transportation becoming on American waterways? Yeah, I think, you know, LNG is, has been extremely important in certain market segments, um, and we're going to see more of that. The recapitalization of the fleet serving the mainland to mainland U.S. to Puerto Rico trade is a great example. You know, we saw the first LNG-powered container ship uh, put into service for that trade. There are now several others, and so there are growing opportunities for barges to fuel LNG-powered ships. Uh, big picture, uh, you know, as I said, marine transportation is the most environmentally friendly way to move bulk commodities, um, but we've got to build on our natural advantages. So as govern- governments and customers and investors and society continue to push for uh decarbonization, we need to explore option, all options to make it cleaner. So companies are taking a hard look at LNG, at battery technology, at hybrid propulsion systems. And I think we're just going to see, we're just going to see more of that. And I'll just note, it's going to be important that we continue to work with, uh, regulators like the Coast Guard to make sure that their policies and procedures and requirements uh, can keep up with all that and don't become uh, an obstacle to the development and implementation of new technology. So do you think you could tell us a little bit more about AWO's role in advocating for the Jones Act? Yeah, so I think I would start with kind of our premise here, which is the same as Congress's in enacting the Jones Act, and that is to say, unapologetically, that transportation of cargo between U.S. points should be reserved for vessels that are owned and built and crewed by Americans. That is important to our national and homeland security. That is important to our economic security. It's in the national interest of the United States that we control our domestic supply chain. Um, And so those are the ground rules, and they ought to apply to everybody. Offshore wind is probably the biggest new opportunity for the domestic maritime industry in decades. There are going to be just a wide array of opportunities um, as we go through the cycle of constructing and 
producing wind energy from those wind farms and then ultimately uh, uh, decommissioning them. There's going to be just thousands of maritime jobs created there. And those should be American jobs as as offshore wind developers um, have touted themselves. I think what we're seeing is that the Jones Act um, is not and does not have to be an impediment to offshore wind. Um, especially with the recent statutory clarification um, that uh, U.S. laws apply to offshore renewable energy just as they do to exploration for oil and gas on the outer continental shelf. We are seeing companies place some big bets. Dominion Energy is building a uh, wind turbine installation vessel. Uh, Great Lakes Dredge and Dock just announced uh, a very big uh, Copper dredge project. So there is lots of investment, and I think we're only going to see more of it. Yeah, I'm, I think that's going to be a tremendous opportunity for the American maritime industry, and it's, it's fabulous that you guys are out there advocating uh, on the front lines for it. Um, so you mentioned also that Subchapter M is in the middle of rollout right now. How is that going, and um, how is it being enforced by the U.S. Coast Guard? So I think it's a work in progress. We're making we're making good progress, but it's important that the Coast Guard stays focused and that we help them stay focused on proactive enforcement, on practical national policy, and then on consistent implementation. That's something that we just consistent we we continually talk with the Coast Guard about. Um, absolutely important that OCMIs have the flexibility to address, you know, geographic or vessel-specific circumstances in their zone, but we don't want to reinvent policy from zone to zone when we're really dealing with the same issues. I think the Coast Guard gets that, um, and they're working hard to make sure that uh, that we're implementing consistently, and, and like I said, we're going we're gonna to stay at it with them as we uh, go from 50% where we are now to 100%. Uh, COIs, which is uh, where we need to be in uh, July of 2022. Great. And um, so the Responsible Carrier Program has played a a big role in the subchapter and rollout. Um, Do you think you could tell us a little bit about that success and how um, AWO's programs are helping um, the industry to comply? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, the Responsible Carrier Program, as I as I mentioned earlier, dates back to 1994, and it was really an effort by our industry to take responsibility for our own safety and say, here's what we're going to do, and we're not going to wait for uh, Congress or some government agency to tell us that we have to do it. You know, and over the years, it evolved, third-party audit became something that all AWO members committed to as they as they became part of the organization. And it really was uh, a foundational part of the industry's early discussions with the Coast Guard about whether going down this path to towing vessel inspection was something that uh, we could do. It's been a major driver of safety improvements over the years as the Coast Guard and the NTSB have acknowledged. Uh, it's led to reduced fatalities, to reduced spills to reduce public safety accidents, and that's been a really solid foundation for Subchapter M. So, as you know, there are a couple of options for compliance under Subchapter M. You can you can choose the Towing Safety Management System option or the Coast Guard option. If you choose the TISMIS option, 
the RCP has been recognized by the Coast Guard as an existing safety management system. Essentially, you've already got, uh, you know, a TISNIS, uh, that you can adapt to meet your own company's needs and use, uh, for purposes of sub-M compliance. If you're using the Coast Guard option where the Coast Guard comes out and does annual inspections because that's what makes sense for your operation, subchapter, uh, excuse me, the RCP, um, is still really important in terms of giving you that solid foundation, that safety culture, um, that provides, uh, a foundation for, uh, not just compliance, but really safety excellence. Yeah, I uh, was very fortunate to be working in the tugboat com- uh, company on the U.S. West Coast. They got their uh, our responsible carrier program certificate, and it was uh, it was a high honor for them. And they worked very hard to get it. And I remember them uh, being very proud to be a part of the organization and be certified. Um, Tell me, what is what is the Vessel Discharge Act, and how does it impact the tug and barge operations of the uh, membership? Yeah, absolutely. So the Vessel Incidental Discharge Act, or VITA, uh, is legislation that was enacted in, in 2018 uh, to solve a problem that was created by a court decision that required EPA to regulate vessel discharges under a Clean Water Act permitting program that was designed for land-based farms, factories. It was about as ill-fitting for vessels and interstate commerce as you can get. So pre-VITA, we had a situation where the Coast Guard was regulating ballast water and certain other vessel discharges under one set of statutory authorities. And then as a result of this court decision, EPA had to establish the vessel general permit and establish the same discharges and some others under a different set of statutory authorities. So even when the agencies wanted to get it together and do the same thing, they couldn't completely because they were accountable to kind of two different statutory, uh, two different statutory masters. Uh, none of those frameworks were preemptive of state requirements. So any state that wanted to add its own requirements or conditions could do that. And what resulted was just a really unworkable patchwork for vessel owners who are trying to make investments in technology like ballast water treatment, um, who are trying to train and educate their crew members in what processes and procedures are required depending on where they're operating, it was a real mess. So it took nearly a decade of coalition work to build a congressional consensus that we need a better system. We need one that protects the environment, that provides a uniform national approach that gives clear roles to EPA and the Coast Guard and the states so they don't trip over each other and make things unworkable for vessel owners and mariners in the process. So we are now about halfway through a four-year regulatory process to implement VITA. Uh, the first phase is for EPA to establish standards, and they published proposed standards last fall. Once that rule is final, the Coast Guard will pick up the baton and establish requirements saying, how do you meet those standards? If they require equipment, you know, what equipment is that? Uh, how do you inspect it? What kind of record keeping do you have to do? What kind of reporting do you have to do? How's that going to impact our industry? Uh, it's going to provide more regulatory certainty because we're not going to have state standards popping up. We're going to have a single national framework. It's also an opportunity to develop a more practical approach to certain issues like inspection and record keeping uh, that, uh, you know, kind of got forced into a uh, 
a straitjacket where they just didn't work because of the EPA permitting program through which the agency had to develop them. We don't have those limitations now. And so EPA and the Coast Guard have the ability to say, yep, we're going to keep things at the same level of environmental protection or take it to a higher level, but we can do it in more practical ways. Yes, yes. Well, a favorite subject of mine, and um, we interviewed Elaine Chow a couple years ago, and uh, we had such great optimi- uh, optimistic attitudes towards the in- U.S. infrastructure and ports and waterways. Um, much has been written about the sorry state of uh, the U.S. infrastructure at ports and waterways. What are some of the initiatives uh, that AWO is in-, in this area, and what needs to be done to protect, stimulate the flow of commerce? Yeah, I'll just start by saying. Investment in waterways infrastructure is really an investment in the competitiveness of our country. It is good for our customers. It is good for the country. Incidentally, it is also good for us. And I just want to highlight, we had a very significant positive development in the uh, waning days of the 116th Congress when uh, the Water Resources Development Act, WERDA, got added into the year-end omnibus appropriations bill. One of the really significant provisions of WERDA, and I want to give our partners at Waterways Council a real shout out for their leadership um, in this, is a change in the cost share for construction and major rehab projects um, on the inland waterways system. Uh, So we previously had uh, 50% coming out of the inland waterways trust fund, 50% coming out of the federal treasury. As a result of WERDA, we now are going to have through 2031, 65% coming out of the federal treasury, 35% coming out of the Inland Waterways Trust Fund. That could produce an additional billion dollars of investment in much-needed lock and dam upgrades on the inland system uh, over the next decade. And I think that's just a real recognition of the national benefits that waterways infrastructure provides. Going forward, uh, you know, the incoming administration has talked about really uh, making an investment in infrastructure, not only to help the country recover from COVID, but also to, uh, you know, build back better is their slogan going forward. We are going to be working hard with WCI to advocate for large-scale infrastructure package uh, with ports and waterways infrastructure as a key component. We're going to work with WCI to make sure that We're getting annual appropriations that are funding these programs at the level that they need to be. And while we're investing in upgraded infrastructure, we got to keep open the channels that we've got. So we need to make sure that the Coast Guard um, is moving forward with alacrity to recapitalize its inland buoy tender fleet and that they are efficiently using the buoy tenders that they have. We need to make sure that we've got, you know, Corps of Engineers dredges where they need to be uh, when we have predictable uh, high water, low water, build-up situations on the rivers. Um, and then finally, we're working uh, on an ongoing basis with industry leaders, with the Coast Guard, and with the Corps to make sure that we're managing traffic safely uh, during changing river conditions. Yeah, you know, that's... Um, that's so important, right? And especially for creating American jobs and reducing the carbon footprint of transportation in the country, because waterways transport is so efficient, right? Does the incoming administration have a sense of that, or are they receptive to this idea that maybe modal shift 
to waterways transportation and investing in that is a way both to create jobs and to improve sustainability at the same time. We are really looking forward to dialoguing with them about the, you know, kind of twin win opportunity that there is here to, um, you know, both invest in our infrastructure in a way that's going to be good for the economy, but also move more cargo on the water, which is going to be good for the environment. So I feel like uh, there's just a lot of basis. There's a lot of uh, common ground and opportunity um, to uh, to really do some good work there. And, you know, I think we've got substantial support for that in Congress as well. Um, you know, this is an industry that's got just a, a national geographic reach. We've got, you know, friends who are conservative Republicans and friends who are liberal Democrats, and they, you know, are able to kind of come together around issues like waterways infrastructure and the Jones Act because they understand uh, that water transportation is good for the country. For the folks who don't know that yet because they just haven't had the good fortune um, to uh, get to know the domestic maritime industry. We look forward to sitting down with them and telling that story. Excellent. You know, I can't, I can't close this without asking you, what is the AWO's biggest challenge right now and for yourself and for the industry overall? So, you know, I would say for the industry, we just need to realize that uh, – we are living through an environment of constant change. Change only comes faster, when, whether we're talking about the political and the public policy environment or the business environment. We've got to navigate that change and help our, our members navigate that change, and we have to, to lead it. We need to confront challenges with really clear-eyed resolve, seize opportunities with creativity, and, and not get comfortable. So I think that's what I would say. You know, I mean, yeah, 2020 was a weird year uh, with the kind of perfect storm of uh, events that we saw, pandemic and severe weather and recession and all of that. But, uh, you know, the pace of change, the disruption that we saw in 2020, I don't think that's unusual. I think that's going to be like par for the course going forward. And so we're going to have to be very nimble to just continually adapt. Um Biggest challenge for myself, I think, is to be a, a great mom to three teenagers um, and, uh, you know, just support them as they come of age in this tumultuous environment and try to give them the confidence and security to meet the challenges that life is going to throw at them head on and be a positive force in that this rapidly changing world that they're going to confront just like our industry is confronting. Yes. Well, Jennifer, we thank you very much for joining the Maritime Executive in this podcast. We look forward to working with you in the years to come, and thank you for your insight. Uh, thanks. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Looking forward to continuing to work with you. All right. Outstanding. Thank you for listening to In the Know, the Maritime Executive Magazine podcast. We hope you'll join us again for our next exciting discussion on maritime technology, business, and policy. In the meantime, please visit us online at www.maritime-executive.com for the latest news and views from around the industry.